Hmm. Are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Sokka, the host of Sokka's Is That So? A show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria. However, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America, and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. Recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the myths surrounding property. Primarily, we're looking at a few different things. So for instance, is property really a low-risk investment? Should property always be your first investment? Can you not make money from property anymore? Is buy-to-let really the best source of income? Do you always improve the property value by making improvements to the property? And is property a great diversifier? Amongst many other questions we'll be asking. So why don't we start at the top, guys? So, house prices will always rise. Is that so? Well, as we've all seen from the 2008-2009 crisis, that is not always the case. So anytime someone says investing in property is a sure way to make money in terms of your capital gains, which is pretty much the value of the property going up, this isn't always true. It depends on how you look at it or what time frame that you're looking at. If you look at it over the course of decades, then yeah, it's easy to say that on average it goes up by X percentage. But if you shorten that time frame or elongate it, the picture might be a different story. So I'd say it really depends on how long the time horizon you're looking at. But house prices do not necessarily always go up. Let's look at another myth. Property is a low-risk investment. Well, that's a pretty general or blanket statement. It doesn't really get to the nitty-gritty of it. Because not all property is created the same. So some might be a high-risk investment. For instance, if you get it in places where land is typically highly valued or where you don't have enough tenants that can possibly rent out the place. So you might have a few months where you're not getting rent and you might miss out on your mortgage or regular payments. You know, it really depends on a few different factors. Everyone has this perception that it's a low risk investment because everyone does it. And there are multiple products available, whether you're just starting out in the bottom of the ladder or you've been doing this for years and perhaps invest in commercial property. So because it's available to everyone, perhaps there's that perception that it's a low-risk investment. Let's talk about the myth of property being or should be your first investment coming out of college or after a couple of years of working in your first job, especially given this economy. Now, from my perspective, I'm not so sure property should be your first investment. Why is that? Well, it's because you actually need a very big deposit which takes years to accumulate. And even then, once you put all that hard-earned cash down, it's not like that money's working for you and paying you. You're still paying a monthly fee to catch up or, or to meet those mortgage payments on a monthly basis. So it depends on what your goal is. If you're trying to get a home, maybe to start off and you know have a child or have a family and things like that, then at least you're not looking at it from an investment perspective. It's actually a point of consumption for you, really. And it might be, make sense to actually purchase a property as your first investment, if that's the stage of life you're in. But if you're trying to get cash flow, it depends. 
I look at it as where is the best place I can invest my money in order to get the highest returns. So whether that's the stock market or it might be a piece of property that's seriously undervalued and there might be some redevelopment happening around there. So that's the way I look at it. I don't think property should always be your first investment. In fact, I think too many people go into it thinking that that is the way to grow your portfolio. So let's look at some of the other parts here. You can't make money from property. At least that's the perception now because all these house prices are super overvalued. Well, again, it depends on what location that you're looking at. If you're looking at central New York or central London, of course it's going to be overvalued. But if you look for places or towns outside of these city centers, you might find some really good deals, actually. Places where the rental yield, in other words, the amount that is paid on a monthly basis, is so much higher than the mortgage that you have to take out for the place, thereby improving your cash flow and things like that. So the answer to can you not make money from property anymore is not so straightforward. It depends on a lot of different factors. Let's look at buy to let. A lot of people go into this thinking that it's a simple and efficient way to make money because you buy the place and you rent it out and that money that comes in pays the mortgage and the rest goes into your pocket. No questions asked. Well, I got news for you. It's not that simple. You got to be the landlord of that place too, if you really think about it. So if any boilers or heaters go off, if there's any taxes that need to be done, any renovations, any drainage issues, all that stuff falls on your head. So you got to account for all those different things as well. Now, I'm not saying it's not profitable for you to be able to do this, but if you don't factor all these different things in, as well as your time spent doing them, then it paints a very different picture. Especially if you're going to hire a company to look after the property on your behalf, they're going to take a sweet percentage out of your profit, which means the overall property is even less valuable for you. So buy to let can be a good way to make money, especially here in the United Kingdom. People have been doing it for so many decades because it was a very lucrative environment. But a key thing to remember, at least from my perspective, is the tax implications as well. If you're a single owner versus if you're a limited company, there are very different tax implications which affect buy-to-let specifically. And I know recently the government's been trying to actually clamp this down. Let's look at the notion or myth of improving a property increases its value. Now, on the surface, it sounds pretty intuitive. If I add a balcony, if I add a patio, if I do all those types of things, it should go up incrementally. But not all improvements are created equally. In some cases, you might be making improvements just to make sure that the property keeps up with the standard of all the houses around the, the area that you're actually living in. So in that case, you're actually paying catch up. Also, what's the value of a patio or balcony versus repairing the roof or adding an extra bedroom? Not all these things are created equally. So you really got to choose and understand what can you do that will actually increase the value by the most percentage or markup that a potential buyer or renter would find valuable. Because again, value versus price are two different things. Value is what someone is willing to pay for it. Price is what you're advertising it as. So those are two very different discussions. Let's talk about if property is a great diversifier. Well, it depends. <laughs> that seems to be the common answer for a lot of these myths. But the honest answer is, it really does depend. Property, if you're putting, or if you need to get into the game of property and you're putting all your money into that first property, 
That doesn't seem like a very diversified portfolio, but there are ways to buy chunks of properties so that your portfolio can consist of things like stocks and bonds and other types of assets. In fact, there's something called a rate, R-E-I-T, rates actually. And that enables you to buy stocks in commercial properties without having to actually put the down payment or deposit down. So there are ways that property can be a vehicle for you to diversify your portfolio. As I mentioned, there's commercial and residential property at the same time. Another thing I'd like to question, is property better than a pension? And by pension, this is obviously when you put your money away and when you're 65, nice and old and saggy. No, not that old. You can actually start to get payouts from the stock market. This could be in dividends or you can actually start to draw the money out of the stocks themselves. But a lot of people by that time would have paid their houses off. So they can take out the equity in their homes that they've accumulated over the years and use that as a means to sustain themselves. Is one better than the other? It depends on the tax implications, what your overall goal is, how long you think you're going to live for as well. There's so many different factors. One reason why you might not want to take money out of your property is because you might want to hand that over to your kids or your kids' kids. If you take out the equity, there's less to hand over. Well, enough from me. Let's actually speak to someone that knows what they're talking about. We spoke to Topsy Taiwo, who's a great friend of mine, and he knows a lot about the property game. On today's episode, we'll be talking about property because everyone thinks that property is the hottest thing or hottest asset class to go to. And there are quite a few different misconceptions when it comes to property. So first and foremost, when someone decides to invest in property, what are some of the first few things that they should look at or watch out for? Yeah, big question. I think number one thing any first-time investor or first-time buyer should do is just have a clear strategy, a clear plan in mind. I think one thing with property investment and property in general is because there are so many different ways to get involved in it. It can sometimes just give people what I like to call analysis paralysis, which is where you essentially look at so many things that you end up just doing nothing at all. And I think a really good thing to do when you're just starting out in property investment, from what I've personally experienced and what I've seen other people do, is... Of course, get yourself educated, but also just put together a clear plan, have a long-term goal, and then work backwards from that. So I think if you can really just map out what's going to be compatible with your lifestyle and compatible with what your long-term goal is, that's a really good place to start. So I can put that in an example. For example, if you plan on working you know, for the majority of your life and you enjoy your job and you want to do that, then it would probably make more sense for you to have a relatively passive style of investment as opposed to something which is quite labor-intensive and hands-on. However, if you really want to get stuck in and you want it to be a full-time job or take up the majority of your time, then there's lots of other strategies involved in property that would involve you to be way more hands-on, like development, like flips, like being a full-time landlord. So it really varies hugely, but the sort of advice I'd give to anyone starting out is really just have a long-term goal and apply whichever strategy within property fits that goal and that lifestyle. So so why do a lot of people think that property is a good way to invest their money, right? Because I could invest in stocks, I could invest in bonds, I could invest in multiple things. Why do most people think of, man, I got to invest in property as the first asset class? Is there a reason for that? And is that the right thing for everyone? I mean, should they even be thinking of property as the first place to grow wealth? Yes, it's a great question. I think there's two things on that. Number one, in the UK, we have an obsession with property. 
it's a cultural thing. And I think generally speaking, it's culturally the norm to want to own a property, if not multiple properties, number one. And the second thing, again, I'm slightly biased because I work in property and I can't necessarily talk in too much detail about other styles of investment or other other asset classes. But one thing I think I can safely say is that property investment is relatively, compared to other investment strategies, relatively easy to understand. And the barriers to entry, although they might be higher, it's a generally safe bet. And I say that cautiously, but if you sort of know what you're doing and you're in it for the long term, it's hard to go wrong. So I think for that reason, because it's quite a straightforward thing to understand, it makes sense to get invested in it. And I think it's also quite a popular thing to say that property doubles every single 10 years. And I think that might be one of the questions you sent to me previously. And that isn't necessarily always true. And I think sometimes it can be a London-centric or a Southeast-centric thing. Well, actually, if you look at the statistics, if you look at now, what prices are in some parts of the country compared to what they were 10 years ago, they're actually still way lower. So it doesn't apply that property prices double every 10 years across the country. And it's actually quite heavily based on geography. But I guess to go back to your initial question, yes, it's it's loved because culturally as a country, we love it. And it's always been that way for a long time. And secondly, because it's a relatively safe bet and relatively easy to understand. Yeah, you mentioned something that was pretty interesting there, which is that most people think it's like a safe bet. It doubles every 10 years. You know, everyone has the psychology. I don't know if it's because it's a physical asset and you can touch it. And maybe it's because it's been that way for so long that people think, oh, property is the right way to go. But I think 2008 kind of changed that mentality for most people that, oh, maybe the price always won't go up. And who knows, even now, right now, as the economy is on a slight, you know, downward trajectory in some capacity, it might yeah. not necessarily be, you know, the, the fact that it always goes up. But that that's one way to increase your wealth, right? The actual value of the property going up if you if you buy a property. But how else can people make money out of property? Because I would think that, yeah, that's the, the, the best way to do it. The property value goes up. But how? what other strategies do people use to actually make money off of property? Yeah, sure. Great question again. There's so many different strategies to get involved in property investment. And I think one way to look at it is capital requirements. And you, you touched on, yes, being able to benefit from the capital growth of property, which is sort of utopia. That's where real general generational wealth comes from. It's where you're really going to see some huge gains that you can eventually benefit from, either to pass on your wealth to future generations, or really just to have as yourself, to have yourself a really solid base. But there's lots of other strategies that people probably have to take when they don't have that capital available to them to start off with. Or should take when they're just getting started out. So for example, a really popular way to get started in property investment right now and has been for a while is actually deal sourcing, which is essentially deal packaging in another way of saying it, which is essentially being the middleman between a buyer and the seller of property, essentially putting together and doing the legwork to find a deal that would make sense to an investor or a property buyer and charging a fee for being the middleman. So you don't necessarily need any, need any capital from that, but you can still benefit from the fees that you collect and sort of build up your pot that way. Another popular strategy, which requires little or less capital than other strategies, is rent to rent, which is essentially renting a property from a landlord, doing all the management, doing all the legwork and renting it out to more people at a slightly higher price than what you're being charged. 
in order to make the profit in that way. So those are two examples right there where you don't necessarily need too much capital in order to get started and involved in property investment, which is quite popular for those who are just getting started out and don't necessarily have the capital available to put down a massive deposit on a on a new property. But, you know, I've just mentioned a couple there, but there's so many different ways in which you can get started and be really creative to try and make money from property. Something that was pretty interesting or that I think of is you need a lot of money to get started in this property game, right? If there's a house, I need 50K, 100K, whatever it is to get started. Is that really the truth? Or can you get started with much lower sums? Maybe that strategy you mentioned of being the middleman or other things like that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think one of my biggest pet hates sometimes, now that you've touched on it, is when people say, no money needed to get started in property. Here's a strategy that requires absolutely no money. You can get started and you become really, really financially free and really rich straight away. And I just can't stand that because that isn't the way, number one, you should be looking at it. But it also attracts the wrong type of crowd who just want to get rich quick with little effort. And if you're really looking to benefit from the gains of property long term, you're never really going to benefit adopting that style of mentality or or, or that style of um, getting started. So one thing I would definitely say is, yes, there are other ways to raise capital if you haven't necessarily got it yourself. But it's always good to sort of have patience and really just learn what is needed and think of it from a long-term perspective. However, let's say you didn't have the capital and you're really keen to get started and let's say getting a buy-to-let or actually having ownership over a property as opposed to deal sourcing or rent-to-rent. There's lots of of things you can do. You could do a joint venture, which is essentially partnering with somebody who has got the capital and you're the brains behind the operation and funding the deal. And then you take some of the profits or whatever percentage agreement you agree with the other party to get the benefits from that property. You could which is slightly unpopular, also take a loan or potentially credit. And the benefits you get from the gain of owning the property outweigh the credit that you take could also be a way to look at it. But also, you know, potentially getting money from a remortgage from a family member. You know, there's a lot of people out there and companies out there who actually present deals to people and present the returns and do all the legwork. Like I just said, it's a joint venture and they use other investors' money to invest in property themselves, promising those investors a return against sort of being an intermediate and a middleman. But as you sort of heard me speaking, there's so many different ways in which you can get involved in it if you haven't necessarily got the capital yourself. Yeah, because I mean, on a personal note, I was trying to, you know, get a deposit to buy a place. And I was mm. I was wondering, how are people actually affording to buy these places? Because I mean, new builds are so expensive and or you yeah. have to get a, go to like zone seven or something like that to get a place. And I found that a lot of people were going to like their family, like friends and family was like the first port of call. And I was like, man, I don't yeah. want to go back to my parents. Like sort of, they already paid for like a lot of my life and I'm going to ask them for a deposit know, for right? home. So looking for other avenues of getting that deposit was really important to, to, to me and I know a lot of my friends as well. So it's interesting that you mentioned a few of those potential ways. I know there's yes. a few startups that are, that are doing that as well that are trying to make it easier for people to get into the property game. That's right, yeah. I mean, there's private companies, government initiatives which are really trying to make home ownership more accessible. You sort of touched on it already. One of the biggest banks in the country is Bank of Mum and Dad, actually, because that's just almost the only option that people, some people have got to, to leave their nest egg in some way. So that's a massive lender in this country. But then moving on to government initiatives like Help to Buy, the equity loan, you've also got shared ownership. You've got something which has recently been released this year by the new housing secretary, which is called, which is a scheme which is going to be targeted at key workers to allow them to get a slight discount, or I should say a parent discount on buying a place. 
But yeah, there's, 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 there's a few ways in which you can get involved if you haven't necessarily got the capital available to you. And to touch on some of the private companies as well who are trying to solve this problem, uh, I'm plugging them because I think what they're doing is great. But Step, Step Ladder, which is a, a company that essentially allows a group of people to put together money into a pot and it circulates. And each month that person gets the lump sum until that pot or that circle ends, if that makes sense. So yeah, there's, there's a few people trying to solve the problem because it is a problem. You know, the average age of the first time buyer is getting higher and higher as years go on. People are living longer. The wage growth isn't matching house, house price growth. I, I was looking at you know, the salary, sorry, the house price to earnings ratio the other day and just how much it's grown over the last 20 years is just quite scary when you look at all the statistics. So these companies and government initiatives trying to solve that problem are very, very much needed. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Is, is it always ideal for you to buy versus rent? Because sometimes it might actually be better for you to rent. And I know a few people that are actually planning on renting for the rest of their lives because they're not tied down. They can move to get better paying jobs. Being a landlord is not always cracked up to be, right? Because you have to work with all the maintenance and some of the fees. So talk a little bit about, is it really always the best thing to do to buy as opposed to rent? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question again. And I think my my answer when I get asked that is always, it just depends on your personal situation. I think you'll often find... What kind of profile would it be better to rent versus buy or buy versus rent? Yeah, so I think yeah, straightforward for someone who should rent is someone who wants flexibility and doesn't necessarily want to have to be or doesn't mind the slight uncertainty of having to move every sort of chunk of time, if that makes sense. You know, I was speaking to a guy I met through a networking event who's a wealth manager for a lot of high net worth individuals. And he tells me all of his clients don't rent the home, sorry, don't own the homes that they live in. Yet they might have a portfolio of five to 10 to 15 properties because they view property as an asset that should return on their investment on a monthly recurring basis. So whatever they live in is a rented property. So that's another type of person, maybe from a mentality type, uh, point of view, who would always rent their property because that's just how they view that as an asset class. And you've, you've got the other group of people who just want the freedom or the flexibility of not necessarily having to be tied down by a 30 or a 35 year mortgage to the same place. And they don't mind the slight uncertainty that comes with having to be subject to a landlord's requirements. So I'd say it fits those people as two use cases. But for those who want, you know, their kids to go to a certain school and they need to own a home in a certain area in order to get their kids into that school, or for those who are very family orientated or just have an emotional attachment to a particular area and they want the security of never having to move out of somewhere because they view a property as a home and not necessarily as much as an investment, for them, it suits to buy. So when you ask that question, it just depends on the financial, the mental and the emotional mindset of who you're asking that question of. There's no right or wrong answer per se. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And speaking of factors, there's this thing that you always hear in terms of property. It's about location, location, location. Now, is that really the truth? Because I know that there are some places that are maybe not the best location, but they have the best opportunity for growth in terms of either capital gains in terms of the value of the property or the rental yields versus the price of the property is pretty high. Uh, How do you negotiate that topic? Is it always about location? And if not, what other factors should factor into you deciding a property is a good investment or home? I think location is, at the end of the day, a really, really important factor. You know, I don't think you can say one is number one or the other because you might have 
for instance, and I think it's a great question you asked because you know, when I was thinking about this the other day, you could own a property in Mayfair, for example, but it's in a horrible block of flats. It's a studio. There's a kebab shop downstairs. And, you know, there's a lot of, no offense to any kebab, kebab shop owners, but, you know, there's a bunch of things which would make that particular property really difficult to sell. Now, yes, it might be number one place on the Monopoly board, or yes, it might be a really reputable location. But when it comes to selling that property, it's not it's not going to be a straightforward sale no matter where it is. So that sort of caveats the sort of mantra that it's always about location. So my answer to that is yes, location is incredibly important and probably really high up there on the number of factors you should look at when you're buying or investing in a property. But there's lots of other things as well that if they aren't right, negate the benefit of the location. Does that make sense? So you could have location as a 10 out of 10, sorry, you could have location as a, as a 10 out of 10, but of the other nine factors or 10 factors or one out of 10, it's not going to be a great property. So I think it, yes, it's important and it is, is something you should really focus on, but it's not the be all and end all, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so what are the factors would you look at? So let's say you had, I don't know, 30K to invest. What, what would you be looking for personally? So. Of course, location. But when I say location, let's delve a little bit deeper into that. You want to look at, again, this really depends if you're an investor or a home buyer. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of crossover between the two of them, but some of the factors that factor high on both of those, or should factor high on both of those people's lists are uh, transport, super important. How easy is it for people to get into the area which is most popular for people to work? Potential regeneration. What uh, what plans have the council or the government got to invest in that property, whether it might be a new shopping centre, whether it might be a new gym, a new sports centre, a new, a, a new university, a, a new station? There's so many other things which, you know, regeneration can help. And if we use, let's say, Box Park as an example, uh, I'm not saying it was a be-all and end-all for Croydon, but when that announcement was made that there was going to be a new Box Park in Croydon, the amount of people who all of a sudden looked at that as a place that they might invest in or now live in all of a sudden changed and that did affect prices. So those things I would certainly pay attention to as far as that's concerned. Transport, regeneration, schools is another massive one. And that's whether you're looking to send your kids to that school or not, because the value of your property will be dictated by the demand of those people looking to go for that. So if you've got a flat or a property which is near a really good school, you're going to open yourself up to a really, really good market because it's an emotional thing. You want your children to go to a good school. So you're going to place value on properties that are close to providing you that good good education. So just off the top of my head, those are some of the things that I'd be paying attention to if I had an amount of capital to invest. And then very lastly, the other thing you also want to pay attention to is areas which almost have a spillover effect from a really popular city. So London's a great example. You know, areas like Shoreditch, Hackney, I'm using East London because it's coming straight to mind straight away, have benefited from lots of capital appreciation over the last 20 years because there's been lots of investment into the area from, you know, from the government, from businesses moving in, from nice fancy restaurants, pubs and bars moving in, which has in turn attracted that sort of so-called trendy hipster audience, which has really pushed prices up. And because of that, the surrounding areas on the, on the slight outskirts of that have also benefited. So 
The spillover effect is also something you should look at. Look at an area which has already benefited from all of those things and look slightly further out. And you might find you've got an area which is going to be popular and good for capital growth because people want to get to that new area of regeneration from slightly further out. So those are some of the things that I would look at, not just in London, but in a lot of the major cities dotted around the country. Yeah. I mean, those are great points. Something else that I think is pretty interesting is the process of actually buying a house. So first of all, when you see a house that you want to buy, right? You're like, oh, this is great. A lot of times is room for negotiation that not a lot of people think about, right? It could be two or 3% and there might be other things you could try and get as part of the deal as opposed to just the straight up purchasing price. So in what tactics or what things do you think buyers should consider or even sellers for that matter when it comes to the negotiation of starting off to sell or buy a property? So... I think one big thing for me, because I used to be an estate agent, that's a great thing to have on your side as a buyer is understanding the motivation and the reason behind the seller selling their property. That can save you a lot of heartache and it can also add a lot of negotiation power to your arsenal. For example, you might come across two properties that are on for the exact same price and one might sell for 10% below its asking price and the other seller might not want a penny less than their asking price. And the difference between the two sellers is one, maybe just had a baby and was living in a one-bedroom property and they had to upsize and the other was just putting it on the market because they felt they might want a new place in a, in a, in a year or so. So yes, they might arguably be the same value, but their motivations are totally different. So you'll find that one might sell for slightly less than the other. So number one, if you're looking to gain negotiation or you want a great tip, in order to get the best price possible, always ask the person who's selling or the person who's representing the seller, what's the reason behind the sale? That can answer a lot of questions for you and give you a lot of information and knowing how to best negotiate with them. Yeah, that, I think that's a great point. And there's always more room with people that are more desperate, right? That oh, need yeah. to get rid of the place. And it's like, you'd be surprised how much you can get off, right? I mean, some places you can get like a cool 30, 40 grand off, which is a big deal, right? Yep. Yep. And that, that sort of brings me on to my other point. You know, an asking price is very different to what something actually sells for. If you look at in London, when Rightmove put out their house price index, they, the last one that I can remember, I think it was either in February or January of this year, the Rightmove house price index in London, which essentially tracks asking prices across the city, put it, um, pinned it at around £620,000. A lazy reader or a lazy journalist might just then assume, oh, so the average uh, price of a property in London is £620,000. It's absolutely not. The average price of property in London is £476,000. It's nearly 200 grand less. And that just shows you right there and then that what someone is asking is very different to what they actually eventually end end up getting. So, you know, an asking price does not mean that's the actual value of a property. And there's so many tools that you can look at as a buyer to really try and gauge what the what the sort of more accurate value of a property might be. I'll finish by saying an asking price is a marketing tool to get the seller the best price. It is not the valuation of the property. It's a marketing tool. Ah, so valuation and asking price are very different, huh? Very different. Very, very different. You know, an agent's job is to get the seller the best price possible or to achieve whatever the seller may... Let me, let me rephrase that. An agent's job is to satisfy the seller's needs as best they can. And quite often, and more often than not, those needs are to get the most money from the property that they can. So it wouldn't make sense for them to put it on the market straight away at a really cheap price unless that seller was desperate to move, which does happen. But 
more often than not in London, you need as much money from your property and you market a property well before you sort of need to make that move. Absolutely. So you, you shouldn't always take the asking price at face value. A few places to sort of do some proper research is land registry. A few websites track land registry, including right move and look at sold comparables. Look at what similar properties have sold for. Um, you could also look at Zoopla, again, another aggregator site that gives you some information. And there's also some paid platforms uh, like Home Search, like Home Track, and a few others that really can allow you to, you know, get a good gauge on what a property might or should be going for, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Something else I thought was pretty interesting was auctions as well. I didn't know yes. that that you can get some great deals, but the problem is um, once you put your money down and that hammer hits, man, you got to buy that property. So you got to do your conveyancing, your valuation yeah. and all that stuff so you don't get stuck. And that kind of actually leads me to the, the process of, of buying a home. So if you don't mind touching on yes. auctions and then also the actual process of buying a home, because I didn't know you need like a solicitor and you need like an extra 10 grand just to pay for all the fees and all that kind of stuff involved. There's a lot more to it. It's not like buying a car, which is so much easier. A hundred percent. And I think that's something that, you know, your listeners should absolutely bear in mind when they're looking to buy property. The cost associated with the buying is not just the cost of the house. So, so it's, it's sort of obvious, but psychologically, you just, you sort of see 450. Oh, I need X amount for the deposit and, and I'm done. No, 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 no. You, you know, you've got the uh, stamp duty, which is probably one of the biggest costs that you'll face when buying a property, which is a percentage of the property price that you will have to pay on completion. You've also got the solicitors, which can range anywhere from, you know, 500 quid to, to 2,000 pounds. Typically, the price of a solicitor will be dictated by how much work that they have to do or the tenure of the property. So leaseholds typically are more expensive for a solicitor to, to work on than a freehold property because there's more paperwork and there's more investigatory work to do. You've also got the cost of mo- uh, removals as well. You know, when you've eventually got to make that move, unless you've got hardly anything to move into that, or, you know, you're someone who's upsizing to a slightly larger property, you've got to factor that cost in as well. You've got to factor the cost in to arrange the mortgage if you're using a mortgage with a mortgage broker. So yeah, there's a number of things that you have to pay attention to. Perfect. So... Yeah, we were talking about the process of buying a home and how the value of the property or the price of the property, should we say, is not what you're going to pay. You have to pay conveyancers, solicitors, and all that stuff. So what are the different factors within that journey or that you need to consider? Yeah, 100%. So as I was saying before, I would definitely say it's the assumption, sometimes psychologically, that you just see the price of the property and you just factor what deposit you need and, and that's it. And that, and that is not the case. Yeah, stamp duty, massive cost you have to consider. It's it's more as well when you're buying a property which is not your first. So the, the price of the stamp duty is higher for that. But you've also got your removal costs. You've got the cost of arranging the mortgage to pay the mortgage broker. You've got solicitor's costs as well, which can range anywhere from 500 uh, to 2,000 pounds. Being more expensive if it's for a leasehold property because it requires more work and more due diligence, and more investiga- investigatory work. So yeah, there's a lot of things that you need to to bear in mind when you're when you're buying a property, not just the deposit, but there's a few, you know, three, four, five other things that are on top of that when when buying. 
Yeah, that's, that's it's, it was something that really stuck out to me. I was like, I could not believe that this is still the process. I mean, it's still pretty archaic because I'm sending emails back and forth and the solicitor or the person that's giving me my money, I would think that they could just use open banking and check out my, like if I'm credible or not. Instead, I'm printing out my uh, PDF of my statements for five months and sending it to them. And it's just such a cumbersome process. I mean, it yeah. definitely needs to move into the 21st century, don't you think? Oh, 100%. And I guess... That's sort of one of the reasons why I wanted to move into the tech side of the business. So as I was saying to you beforehand, I, I work in the sort of prop tech industry, which is, I guess, another another phrase for improving efficiency within the property industry. But I also have my own platform as well. And one thing which I am a massive advocate for in both of those things is inputting processes and inputting things that are going to make it a much less strenuous and much less tedious process. Currently, right now, it takes on average three months for a transaction to go through. And that's the average, which is just crazy when you think about it, considering all the innovation that's happened in, in fintech, agritech, or you know, tech in any other field. Why is it that with property, it still takes so much time and so much energy to get a transaction through? So yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of room for efficiency to be input into that whole process to make it a much more liquid asset. Because if you can all of a sudden reduce the time it takes for a transaction to go through, all of a sudden the liquidity of the asset increases because it's no longer, I've got to wait four months before I can realize my my capital, my cash from this. I can potentially get this in two weeks. So if we get down to that, then I think the value of property could go even higher or could be a more attractive asset for people because you can go in and out of it so quickly. Just for the sake of the audience, when you say liquidity, what do you mean by that? So liquidity is how quickly, or I guess for me personally, I look at it as a spectrum, how quickly your asset can be used, uh, can be turned into cash, i.e. cash, for instance, is probably the most liquid type of asset you can have because it's easy, it's so easily transactable. You can you can purchase something with it straight away. You can use it in lots of different formats. However, property, you might have a hundred grand equity in your property, but you can't do anything with that until you realize it in order to use it to as a value exchange for something else. So yes, you can, you know, put debts and put loans or put charges against your asset, but for that for that um capital to be used as something else. And to be used used in another transaction, you need to wait. You know, like I said, three months in order to be able to do that. Yeah. So, so imagine now that you finally get your property. You you know you moved in or you started renting it out into an investment, right? Let's talk a little bit about post buying the property, right? So renovations or even maintenance and things like that. Let's say yeah. I want to add on a balcony or something like that, and I want to increase the value of the property and and and, and those types of things. In my mind, it's just like, oh yeah, I'll hire a contractor and they'll like fix it up, or I'll hire or an outsource it to someone to to manage or do the maintenance. But is that always the most efficient way to do it? And is that the best strategy to go go uh, by? Because maybe uh, instead of outsourcing it and paying like so much money, I can manage it myself, or I shouldn't. Or maybe getting a contractor in to actually make these improvements is going to cost me more than the actual appreciation of the of the property. I don't know, but how do you sort of negotiate those two things? I think if you if you're not in it and you haven't had experience with doing renovations yourself, then you just I guess have to accept that you're going to have to either pay pay to invest in yourself to get those expertise or pay somebody else for it. That's just how it's going to be, unfortunately. So a good place to start in that perspective is 
If you have got a project going on or if you are making renovations to a property, try and make it close to home where you can keep an eye on it. I've heard of so many horror stories of a Londoner buying a property in you know, Manchester, Birmingham, and they haven't really been able to keep a close eye on it. And what they really wanted has not been reflected in the result of what they got. So I think it's really important to make sure that if you're not doing it yourself, you haven't got the expertise to do it yourself, get as close to the project as you possibly can do and just accept that you're either going to have to have your profits or some of the value taken away by the by the fact you're going to have to pay somebody else to do it or invest in yourself to do it. That's just unfortunately how it is. But if whatever you're doing, you know, is a great extension or it's a great bit of work, then you'll definitely make then you'll definitely find the benefits of what you've got massively outweigh any cost that you've had to spend on doing it. Generally speaking, I have to caveat I have to caveat that by saying, you know, again, being an agent, I've seen so many extensions and so much work being done to a property that hasn't necessarily increased the value too much, where you know someone spent, I don't know, putting you no know, really expensive marble floor down on a top floor you know, ex-counter block in the arse end of nowhere. You know, unfortunately, you know, the value spent is not going to be the value added. It's not really going to be realised in the value added. So you can find some stories in that respect which don't necessarily add that much money to your property. Yeah. In in terms of alternatives, so we've spoken a lot about like residential property, mm. but commercial property or even just buying land on its own, or I, I mean, we can take it as far as buying tiny houses like they do in America. Have you ever seen that show? It's like, yeah, tiny little, yeah it's just, dude, just say you're broke, man. Don't, don't try and call <laughs> it a you know, tiny house. But let's talk about alternatives to buying residential property as either an investment or as a home. What, what have you seen out there? Yeah. So as far as sort of alternative strategies, I think you touched on land just there. I can sort of answer that question in two ways. Number one, I'm not an expert in commercial property. But one thing I will say is that sometimes that land is overlooked so much. If you can get a good bit of land in an area, like we touched on earlier in the conversation, has a lot of benefits from being next to areas which are going to be great for capital growth, that's, that's going to be really valuable. And that's not so much if you build on it. You can just keep the land and that still goes up in value because of all the things around it. So if you, for instance, got land, and then you apply for planning permission for something to be done and then resold that land after owning it with the planning permission, you can still get profit in that way. That's a really great way to to make money without actually having to do any labor on it. It's just buying in the right area and then selling it on. Another very similar strategy strategy to that is flipping. So when I was working as an estate agent, I saw a lot of developments that were being sold today with a completion date in maybe three, four, five years time. And those contracts that they exchanged on were assignable so they might have bought it in 2015 and thought hmm you know what i don't want to keep this asset or they it might have been their plan all along and they then sell that contract on in 2017 2018 they've made a profit without the property even being built yet so that's another way in which you could potentially make money money from property and then the last way is actually maybe a mixed use development where you buy something which has got the ability to have the ground floor being used for commercial purposes and it's got a particular license based on the commercial grading that allows it to have to, to be used either either as a shop or a restaurant or whatever else it might be. So if you've got that in a good in a good location, you can find that that can really increase the yield and the return on investment that you have. 
Nice. Yeah. I, I, those are alternatives that people don't necessarily look at because I think they yeah. think it's so far outside of their realm, like buying a mixed use development. It, oh, it's only corporations that do that. But you as an individual, oh, you no. can get in the game too, you know, like it's for everyone to play. And uh, we're almost coming to the end of it. But I want us to touch on the whole new build versus an existing home because that's like an age old debate. And I yeah. kind of went through it too. It's like, man, I want that new shiny place, but the quality might not be that good or I'm paying over the odds for it. How do yeah. you negotiate that new build versus like ex- existing sort of property? Yeah, you know, I think there's a degree of personal preference that comes into this as well. If you, if you, And I know it's slightly off-piste here, but I used to sort of show houses sometimes to buyers who are from the Far East, you know, China. And rightly or wrongly, my personal experience was that with those buyers, they viewed anything as old as not valuable, which is not the case in this country because the older and the more characterful and the more original something is often has a positive impact on the value of a property here. So when you look at it in the, through that lens, you find that sometimes it's just, it's, just, it's just cultural and it's a matter of preference. But the other thing I will say is that with new builds quite often, you know, because they are new and because everything is done for you, just from a logical standpoint, you're going to expect to have to pay a, a slight bit more because it's ready-made. You know, that's just logical. You know, if you buy all the parts to something and not the finished product, you're going to always pay less. Like a meal, if you make a meal yourself, you know, it's going to be less, it's going to be, it's going to cost you less than if you buy the finished meal. That's, that's just logic. So I don't like it when we get annoyed about, oh, why are you so much more expensive, you know, in, in the same area when, you know, something which is older isn't. It's like, well, it's ready made for you. So of course it's going to be more expensive. But um, the other thing as well is that a lot of developers have now been, started to has not started to benefit from government initiatives like help to buy and because demand has been boosted by the government because they've been given subsidies and incentives to build they've now been able to you know get away with maybe evaluating or marketing the property at a slightly higher price than what they could have previously done so so you're finding a lot of people who bought through a government scheme are probably paying more than if that property was not being incentivized or being artificially pumped up by a government. So that that aspect that people often talk about with new builds is definitely true. There is, there is an element of truth to that. But again, that can be caveated if you're buying in a great area with great, with great capital growth. So I guess to answer your question directly, yes, there is a slight premium that you will find you'll have to pay with a new build. And if that's something you're prepared to do and it was to get a ready-made product, then fine, no problem. But Personally, me, I would, if you're going to put me into a corner and say what I would rather go for, I would personally, and this is just my preference because I don't like it. I don't like buying in massive big blocks of new build flats. The property that I own is in a block of flats, but it's got loads of characters, got high ceilings. It's an old converted mental hospital with loads of Victorian and Edwardian features. And that's because I like character. I don't want to live in a sort of massive block of flats of loads of other people. And from my personal experience as an agent and working in property, because of the value that this country places on original features, I know that that's going to help hold or gain value, if that makes sense. So the sort of new build versus older property debate is is not necessarily a straightforward win, yes or no answer, and has got a lot of variables attached to it. But personally, me... I, if I could, I would always go for something which was original and not necessarily a new build. 
Yeah, those are excellent tidbits, man. I, I moved from a place that had not even a whole ceiling. It was kind of slanted to the point that I couldn't stand up straight in the, the apartment. It was in, uh, <laughs> in Shortage near Old Street and it was yeah, tiny, no. but I was in like a, a proper hot location, right? And then I moved to a place where there's like high ceilings. And even though I couldn't touch obviously the top of the ceiling, but it just made my quality of life so much better. So these are some of the things that you don't think about, right? The small, sometimes the attention is in the detail. It's the high ceilings, it's the type of finishing that they used it's all these kinds of things that'll help it hold its value and can add that extra five to ten K yeah. or whatever it is to the price, right? Don't get sort of duped by the lovely pictures and you know the great graphics and all the great marketing. Sometimes you forget that you actually have to live in this place and not just look at the pictures of it. You know, sometimes that bedroom might be tiny. And yes, it's definitely true. There's a lot of new build developers who have cut corners and you'll find that what they use for your property, they've also used in some other horrible, shoddy place as well. And there's not really a separation in the value that they've placed on yours versus another. So, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. The location, a good school, transport, and lots of other good things might outweigh the negative of that particular new build. But if you're taking everything into consideration, my utopia and my ideal is all of those good things, but a property with character that I can put my own stamp on and add value to this myself and the way that I want it to be added. But look, if you're a first-time buyer, you're looking to just get on the ladder, you want a place to live, you want to leave your mum and dad's house, it's better off your money goes into that than being spunk to an alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So to round up here, I want to make sure that the audience gets as much as they can. So what are some of the resources that you know that people can go to? So whether it's a database, whether it's a company you highly recommend, whether it's auction sites, whatever it is, what what would you like the audience to take away? Like what's something that's really valuable? Yeah, I think... You know, you've got your investor and you've got your person who just wants to to buy somewhere. And I guess those two things cross over. But if you're looking to buy property, the number one thing I would just say is go to Google and just Google stuff. <laughs> like I know it sounds really rudimentary and obvious, but just just start Googling and start educating yourself on what actually is involved in buying a property. You know, there's no secret source or secret website or secret resource that you need to go to. Just start educating yourself straight away. Secondly, have a long-term goal as to what you actually want to achieve out of property ownership. Is it for financial freedom? Is it for security and peace of mind? Is it to, you know, have your own space just so you can impress the lady? Look, whatever, whatever it might be, just have a reason and then work backwards from that. And over time, you'll probably find that your reasons start to change to be honest, as your life changes and as your goals change and as you change as a person. So I would just say, you know, start Googling, start educating yourself on what you want to do. From an investment perspective, if you're looking at this purely an asset class that you want to make money from and, you know, gain real financial wealth from, then there's so many strategies to get started. There really are quite a few. And again, it really depends on what type of lifestyle that you want to lead. But I would say get networking, go to events, you know, I'm obviously a good person to sort of point you in the right direction if you want specifics on who you should speak to or what websites you want to go to. And then just get, get, get yourself out there. Get yourself out there. It's not as complicated as people think. You know, you really just need to immerse yourself with the right people, the right resources and the right websites. And you'll find that over time, your goals and what you want to do will start to get start to get refined. But, you know, I'm going to plug myself here. You know, Property Purchaser is my is my platform. You know, if you want just an initial chat about property, I'm a great person to speak to, just free of charge. 
And I can also point you in the direction of some other great people within my network and people who I know are, are really good to get more specific strategies on as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks for your time. No problem at all. And really, thank you for having me as well. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Sockers. Is that so? Hopefully you guys learned a thing or two from Topsy. Obviously, he's got a lot of knowledge. But if you need to reach out to him or us about property, don't forget to email us at info at sockersisthatso.com. You can follow us on all our social media pages, Instagram, Facebook, and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Hopefully you guys learned a thing or two, primarily a, always look for redevelopments that might be happening in your area because that might be a good opportunity to get into a good property investment. B, it's not always about location, location, location. There are other factors that might be more important and more prominent. And C, buying versus renting. It really depends on your particular circumstances because buying involves a lot of cash, even though there are ways to get cash on the low in order to get on the property market, but renting is a good alternative for the short term as opposed to the long term. In fact, it might even be good for the long term in some cases. It really depends on what works for you. We'll talk to you guys next week on Wednesday with the latest episode of Sockers Is That So. See you guys later. Hold up. 